Michael J. Fox is the opposite of a victim. I mean, he is the master of his own destiny. I mean, he is, he, that's, that's the opposite. I mean, he, you know, it's a terrible disease he got and he got early. And he's even taken that and changed the face of literally every person who has Parkinson's now and every person who may get Parkinson's in the future. I mean, he would have been able to rally that kind of that kind of dollars and support and that kind of support with his celebrity he did that full on and he changed the face of the world it's just that simple welcome to the connected leadership podcast hosted by andy lapata the show where andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions make leaders jobs easier and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is a primetime Emmy-nominated director and showrunner known for her work on Opera's Masterclass series and NBC's Making It with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. She's worked with the biggest stars on major shows for Netflix, ESPN, MTV, VH1, Apple Plus and more. And her latest project is a film that absolutely blew me away, both as a fan of film and the subject of that film, and also someone who's personally been very affected by its main content, which we'll come on to. You may have seen it, and I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you will after the podcast. It's called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. It's directed by the Oscar-winning filmmaker Davis Guggenheim, and it's a phenomenal biopic of the actor, Michael J. Fox, charting both his career and his struggles against Parkinson's disease. I mentioned that I've been affected personally. My father struggled with Parkinson's for 10 years before he passed away a couple of years ago. And watching this film really impacted me. But it impacted me on that level, very emotional level with my dad, but also just as a a biopic, I'm a big fan of film. And I have to say, this is probably one of the best biopics I've seen, just the way it's stitched together. It tells Michael J. Fox's career story brilliantly, and it's entertaining at the same time. So I am delighted to welcome the producer of Still, Annette Marion, to the Connected Leadership Podcast. Annette, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, 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 Andy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and on the Connected Leadership Podcast. And uh, yeah, can't wait to spend some time together today. Well, I mean, I've talked about how still affected me, and it means a lot to have you on the podcast. When I was watching it, I didn't quite imagine that a couple of weeks later, I would be chatting with one of the producers, one of the team of it. So we're going to talk about still and, you know, your motivations for it and what lay behind that. But why don't we start with your career to date and and a couple of things around that not everyone gets to be a a director and a producer working on on such amazing projects as you have and I know a lot of people would love to so how did you end up working in film and what led you to your current role and the projects you've worked on to date oh my goodness I am so humbled and grateful to work in this industry and to work as a director and a producer. I mean, it really was a long, long hard journey, but if, if it's the reason you're put here on earth, like I feel like this is my reason for you to be here on earth, it is easy because you can't do anything else. So, um, or you don't want to do anything else or you need to do it to, to be happy. I mean, I actually started off, I, I didn't go to film school. I went to engineering school and then was working as an engineer and accidentally made my first film and literally fell in love. Like I fell in love so hard with 
telling stories and telling stories with moving images and sound. And just basically my company at that time was paying for my master's degree. So I hung around for like another four months to finish my master's, defend my thesis. And then I just quit. I I quit and I started over in this entertainment business at, at that age, which was you know, everyone has their own path to this industry. That was my unusual path. And I quit and I never looked back, never regretted it for one second through all the you know ups and downs. And, um, you know, basically started over working as an intern, working for free, you know, I quit my job to direct, but I was able to make money and earn a living more in the producing side at the beginning, um, but always was directing my own work since that is my love, my heart, and transi- transitioned into directing professionally in 2011. And yeah, here I am. So you talk about loving what you do, and I can really relate to that. I've been in that job that sucks your soul out of you. And I'm now in the job where I'm just like you, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that is so important. We spend so much of our time. It also struck me, you said you love storytelling. And I can't believe I didn't even plan this question because it's so obvious given what we've talked about on this podcast over the years. Storytelling lies at the heart of a lot of what we talk about because telling stories helps engage people in the message we want to share. So I'm going to go straight into it on, on that. and We'll come back to your career in a second. What are your your top rules for telling great stories that engage people and get people to want to know more? Well, it's so nice to hear you say how important storytelling is to you. I mean, I think it's a human thing. It's how we communicate. It's how we connect. I mean, there are now, you know, theories in education that prove that if information is being given out in a story way, as opposed to like rote memorization or anything else, people remember more. It's just really how we engage. It's soul to soul, I truly believe. And um, I, uh, I've i always been fascinated by why people do what they do, because good people can do bad things and bad people can do good things. And so like the human psychology behind that is endlessly fascinating to me. So, you know, my sweet spot as a storyteller, basically complicated family stories. And by family, I mean, you know, you could have a work family, you can have your motorcycle gang family, you can have your barista family, you know, whatever kind of so family in a broad sense is what sparks me. And yeah, I just, I think human beings are endlessly fascinating because we can change, we pivot, we change in a dime, you know, from one minute to the next, but we're all still, you know, just who we are as well. And I, I can unpack that to the day that I die. So I'm going to take a leaf out of your book in this podcast, because I'm not going to go chronologically, which is, you know, something that we'll find still in that you've got that, you've got that chronological story of Michael J. Fox's career, but you start at the end effectively with where he is now, and that's interspersed all the way through. So when you're looking at a project like that, and you've got a subject, and I know you don't just work on documentary, so part of the question, I guess, is there a different approach to documentary to draw, for example? But when you've got that subject, how do you decide how you're going to tell that story, how you're going to piece it together so you create the right narrative that keeps people engaged, doesn't confuse, but leads them into where you want them to be at the end? Well, I think it's really, really different, not not so much between documentaries and you know scripted. It's different if the audience already sort of knows where the story is going to go. Like the audience clearly already knows Michael J. Fox and clearly knows about his Parkinson's 
the diagnosis and clearly knows about his, you know, his incredible career. So it feels important to me to kind of start with that because it's not a surprise to practically anyone. Whether a story is told in a linear manner or nonlinear, I think it's more about the story you're trying to tell and the subject is what drives the structure because the story and the subject, you know, a, a different structure will be better for a different story or a different person. Um, but just generally speaking, I am a fan of nonlinear storytelling. You know, I have directed some short films that were beginning, middle, end, but even a lot of my short scripted work starts with, even if you're just like foreshadowing it or dropping in a little tiny bit, you know, the nonlinear um, model, I think creatively, I'm just very excited about. And, and I also think that kind of storytelling brings the viewer in sooner because the viewer is along this journey with you and discovering things with you. And that's the most, I love that when the viewer is not just a passive, you know, participant, you know, the more we can get the viewer involved in the story and what changes and how and all of that. I mean, I think that's so powerful and I love it. Sort of planting questions in their mind from the very beginning. I'm thinking straight away of Pulp Fiction and the way that was structured, which I think was really quite groundbreaking at the time, starting in the middle. Absolutely. And then mixing it up and then taking you there so it makes sense at the very end. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be a good example of that. And that really engaged from, from the very beginning. Uh, okay, so let's look at your career a little bit more pre-still. You worked on Oprah's Masterclass, and that must have been fascinating, <laughs> as well as a tremendous opportunity for you. So tell us a bit about that. What stands out for you from that experience? Oh, my goodness. Oprah's Masterclass was a premium docuseries on OWN that ran from the very first day of the network. The Oprah Winfrey Network launched with an episode of Oprah's Masterclass, and we had six seasons, 55 episodes. Our last episode was our master. It was uh, Congressman John Lewis. So it was the perfect way to end scene. <laughs> but I loved that job beyond belief. It was just meeting all the different, you know, iconic figures that, you know, got to meet and interview and get to know and, you know, dive into their stories and be able to tell their stories. And of course, working with Oprah is a privilege and amazing. She's so smart and so freaking good at her job. <laughs> it's really a sight to behold what she can do so quickly. I mean, she's just, she's targeted. She's super smart, very prepared. Um, it was glorious. Another thing that I really liked about it is, um, you know, scripted content is really where my heart is. And I was able, by the end of the season, by the end of the series, I was not only directing the scripted units on my episodes, I was also directing the scripted segments on all the episodes across, you know, all the other directors. So that was super fun for me. I loved it. We were able to like cross board different episodes, like two to three episodes at a time. And yes, it was really fun. It was really, very hard to make. I think most things that are worth making probably are hard to make. I've only done hard things, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I loved every second of it. You know, if a challenge is a good thing. How did you get involved with that in the first place? Was that quite early in your career? Had you already established yourself? Yeah, I was definitely established as a producer and line producer and established as an in indie director because I'd been directing, you know, since I quit my engineering job. And 
I had done a lot of freelance work at a company called Radical Media, which I'm here in New York in the West Village. And they called me to work on both Oprah's Masterclass and Visionaries Inside the Creative Mind, which was a second series that was premiering on OWN. They called me to work on both at the same time as you know, on the producing side of things. And um, oh, Andy, you're gonna love, I actually said no. I was like, yeah, no. That sounds to me like you want me to, and the rate wasn't great. The rate was just whatever. And I'm like, okay, so that sounds like you want me to work twice as hard for less money. And I'm like, I, and for longer. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> so anyway, I was definitely pitched by the president of media and entertainment who, you know, literally can sell ice to the Eskimos. And of course I said, yes. And I'm so grateful that happened. And I'm so, I was so grateful to end up with those projects, especially because masterclass was so fun for me as a director and also was what transitioned me from an independent director to a professional director. So that's what I've been doing since really pretty much since 2011. So two things sort of crop up for that for me, just from the point of view of the podcast and what we're trying to achieve through here. One of it is a lot of people, um, one of the questions I get asked a lot is about how you engage with people who are perceived to be at a higher level to you. And with opera, you're dealing with probably the most, if not one of the most famous <laughs> women in the world. Um, so when you first met her, how was that relationship? How did you establish a relationship of trust? How did you do that with people like Michael J. Fox as well and the guests that you had on Masterclass? And the other, I'm going to wrap the two up together. The other one is when you have a network, as I'm sure you have built up of highly influential, famous people that everyone wants to get to, how do you filter requests to meet them or to engage with them? How do you handle that? Because you're going to be incredibly protective of those relationships and yet your work is going to see you as the conduit. So how do you engage with them and win their trust in the first place? And how do you protect that as well? Well, I think for me, to be the best producer and also the best director, it's very complicated and complex, but it's also very simple as well. I think the very first thing is to care deeply. Like just, you can't fake caring deeply. You must care deeply. And if you care deeply, you know, that deeply, as deeply as humanly possible about your project and then therefore the people in your project, I find that to be the guiding light. Then you're going to do the right thing. You're going to say the right thing. You're going, you know, but the caring deeply is you, you have to start there. I definitely worked with a lot of celebrities, but also worked with a lot of, you know, middle career people and a lot of unknown people and a lot of aspiring people and a lot of real people too, who are not professional talent, but they're on screen. And the most important thing I think is to, you know, meet everyone where they are in that moment. Because even the person you've worked with, just say you're working with someone for like, you know, 10 days and is day 11, they might be a different person on day 11 because they just, who knows what happened to them that morning? Who knows what's happening to them in their personal life? You know, so it's really about meeting people where they are in that moment. And, um, and when it changes, because it will, be a, an open heart to pivot. And, and I feel like my job as a director and also producer is, you know, you kind of maybe get the idea from the movies that, you know, those are very dictatorial kinds of positions, but they're not. Like it's, I feel like it's my job to, you know, I have my team that has been assembled, whom I love. And my job is to understand what each individual needs and provide that for them. 
you know, some people need space. Some people need to talk for 19 hours. Some people need to see it, you know, something typed out. Some people or or visual references. Some people need to hear it. Some people need all of those things. And the trick is to just just engage and figure out what everybody needs and give it to them. It just that's your job. I think it, it's such an important point that irrespective of status, job title, whatever it might be, everyone is a human being. Everyone has an individual response. Some may carry their status more than others will, but we've got to, I love that phrase you use about meet people where they are. Uh, To me, that's so important. And we can do that in so many elements of our work. Because even the most famous individuals are human beings. They wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You know, they have challenges with their family. I mean, we're, we're all the same on some level. And if you meet them there, that's my comfort level. You know, that's my, I mean, I can definitely, you know, I have one story. I had, I did fangirl out once in my career, like, crazily and had to leave the building but that was only once thank goodness <laughs> so are you gonna are you gonna tell us trent Reznor of nine inch nails whom i <laughs> adore and he was being interviewed for a series this very short series on apple product this is years ago and i have never told this story and i cannot believe i'm telling you but i was just such a fan and when he arrived i was just like ah! And I walked out and then I had to come back, of course, and everything was fine. But that was it. That was it. I've kept my cool (laughs) the rest of the years. (laughs) If it makes you feel any better, I've worked with and met a few celebrities over the years of different kinds. And I bumped into the coach of my football team on the train. And my tongue just inflated <laughs> about three times its normal size. And I couldn't get a coherent sentence out at all. And I, if I don't fanboy anyone, it's football players and football managers. No disrespect <laughs> to them. And I've had very articulate and very intelligent football players on the podcast. Um, but generally, I don't fanboy over them. I couldn't get my words out. So it happens. Yeah. It happens it's a physical words. reaction. Like when, when yeah. you, when you experience this, it's like your body has hijacked your mind and your body is just doing what it's going to do, whether that's being tongue tied or like leaving to go to the backyard. <laughs> so, yeah. So as you're working with this whole range of people from high status, high celebrity through to key functions, but you know, we wouldn't recognize their name. Your network must be essential. I mean, you're in an industry that thrives on networks. So how do you, how do you build those long-term relationships, maintain relationships after working together on a project and call in the support you need from your network over time? It's a great question. And I, I think it also goes back to, you know, out of the gate, caring deeply. Like no one is ever going to be the right person for every job. And no one is, you know, no one is going to be the right friend for you forever. You know, it's really keeping your heart and mind open to, you know, the people that you click with and then not being disingenuous about it. Like really my goal when I meet anyone new, whether it's a celebrity or someone who can help me or someone I'm helping, you know, my goal is to befriend that person. Full stop. Just befriend them. You know, it's not about, okay, oh, I've got this hit list of I need X, Y, Z, you know, A, B, C from you, Andy. So I'm going to be like, go in there with an angle and figure things out. Like, I don't do that. I try and just make 
a friend and then I feel like everything else comes naturally. And also like I never really had a mentor or anything like that at the beginning of my career because I was parachuting into the entertainment b- business in Cleveland, Ohio and knew no one and knew nothing and all of that. But yeah, I, I think it's really and because of that I try as hard as I can to mentor other people. And, you know, when someone asks if whatever they ask for, if I can give it to them, I do. And if I can't, I don't. And I don't feel bad about it. You know, so it's, I think it's, um, I'm trying to be the mentor I wish I would have had a long time ago, because it's easy to do. And we should, I think it's just an obligation. It's a community building thing. And I think, and the other part about, you know, community, and that's with, you know, colleagues and people of higher status and different status like you're talking about. It's just, it's community and it's community building. And if, you know, if you care deeply, it kind of all comes more naturally than like, um, oh my God, I have to have my Excel spreadsheet and figure out an angle here and all of that. You know, I think just caring deeply and wanting to be people's friends goes a long way. Do you have a mentor now? I have many mentors now. But my um, my main mentor, his name is um, Kabir Akhtar, who was, I met at the DGA. We were both active in the diversity committees at the DGA, met him first there. And then I'm so happy to say that I'm recently involved in the DGA's episodic television director mentorship program. I'm a mentee because my I'm an aspiring uh, scripted TV director and Kabir ended up also we're friends and then he was my mentor and he's been amazing. Really, I feel like I have so many mentors, mostly from a lot through my work at the DGA, you know, Mary Lou Belli, uh, Laura Belsey, Bethany Rooney, Ed Ornalis, um, Hanley Culpepper. I mean, I could go on and on um, of people, friends, like true friends who understand my journey and are raising their hand to help. That's fantastic. Well, I might call on you for a separate conversation on that because I'm writing the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring at the moment. Oh, my goodness. I have so much to say about mentoring from both sides of it. So, Andy, sign me up. Excellent. (laughs) Well, that will be our follow-up. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, And I assume DGA is Directors Guild of America. Yes, yes. Yeah, DGA, Directors Guild of America. I'm also just very happy to say that we came to a tentative agreement in our negotiations with the studios as of a couple days ago. And there's a ratification vote out now for that. Uh, An agreement that's excellent for all members of the DGA because the Directors Guild of America not only covers the directors, but also our teams, which is the UPMs, unit production managers, assistant directors, et cetera. And we also drew a bunch of lines in the sand that that, the idea is to, to help our sister guilds as well. That's good, because I actually had a a member of the Screenwriters Guild on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Beth Sherman, and I didn't ask her about the the strike because I didn't know quite when the podcast would be coming out and if it would still be happening. But yeah. Oh, I'm sorry if I dated this, Andy. You can No, not at all, because this is is coming out imminently. So we're interviewing, we're talking on Tuesday and it's coming out on Monday. So within a week. Um, So no, that's absolutely perfect. Let's talk about still. Because I think it is such an important film and I think it's a great example. I think we can draw a lot from it in terms of what, what I looked to, to achieve from the podcast. So let's talk about your role on Still, first of all, because you've talked about directing, you've talked about being a producer. I'm sure many people are familiar with both terms, but may not know the difference between the two. So perhaps if you can talk about 
what your role on still was and what your responsibilities were and then we can dig a little bit deeper into the film itself mm-hmm. that sounds great so i was the main producer on still i was there from you're not the very very beginning about you know before i joined this two-year journey davis guggenheim the director and his company concordia studio i think had about a year in development before i joined but yeah i was there at the very beginning you know in collaboration with Davis, putting together initial plans and budgets and how we were going to do things and why and what the goal was. And then I was, you know, on board, um, you know, responsible for all of that and really just the uh, bringing to fruition the creative, the creative vision that I loved so much when the project was pitched to me that I really wanted to bring to life. Um, but yeah, there to the very end. And now we're out in theaters and on Apple Plus. And it's live in the, in the wild, as I like to say, out in the wilderness. There it goes. So, so, I, <laughs> so I always see the producer as the, the spreadsheet role, the person who sort of is the CEO of the project, effectively. You've talked a lot about your you know loving directing you talk there about the creative vision for me i mean i've touched on it already but i think the direction of it is brilliant just the the way you've used shots from michael j fox's films and, and tv career to illustrate what you're talking about in the program has been done wonderfully how much input do you have into that that creative side when you've already got a director leading the project mm-hmm. and does it frustrate you if you can't direct it yourself Oh my God, so much in there, Andy. So first of all, thank you for your kind words about the movie and the creative vision. I mean, really, that's a hats off to Davis Guggenheim, our director, Michael Hart, our editor, and Jackie Clary, who was the archival producer on at the helm of digging up all that stuff. <laughs> so that was, you know, fantastic. I mean, I feel like it's funny that you say that about you think that, you know, you feel like the producer is like the spreadsheet kind of person. I have worked as the, that's more of like a line producer role. And I definitely have worked that role for millions of years and know it inside and out. But it's not really anything that I, I mean, I'm at the helm of that and I direct that, but I, I don't, I have other, you know, Javier, I worked with three different line producers on still most recently Javier Gonzalez, who he was, you know, the line producers are more like the spreadsheet kind of people. I just, more double check and make sure it's going in the direction that I want. And, you know, when there needs to move things around, like I'm like the more of the bigger picture strategic and also like relationship person. Yeah. 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 I think that might be just more what I do. And it's funny that you say that about producers, like what a producer does. I mean, there's no one answer. I mean, there's an answer for every producer that there is. I mean, some producers are on board at the beginning putting together the treatment. Some producers come in a targeted, you know, when you go to shoot in a particular area, come in in a very targeted way to, you know, bring that to life. Some producers land the talent only, land the script only, but they're, you know, it takes a village, a producer village. Yeah. So every producer works a little bit differently and every project is a little bit different, different as well. So the, the title, you know, it's, there's one title for a billion different roles, which I think is weird but it, and can be a little frustrating, but it's just the way the business is. So, Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, 
It is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. So from that creative element, when you are a director as well, and you have a director, not only on the project, but in this case, leading the project from the sound of it from the beginning, how do you work together in terms of your creative vision versus his creative vision and making sure that you have a positive collaborative relationship rather than creating conflict? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no conflict at all. I mean, my the creative vision for Still was established when I came on board, and that's one of the things that I fell in love with. And so as a director, I know what I want a producer to do for me. And as a director, what I want from a producer is all the support and thinking outside the box to get what what my creative vision and get that on the screen and pulling out all the stops and, you know, really, you know, over, you come up against an obstacle. What's the way around it? What's the way over it? What's the way through it? So that was my, like, I felt, I felt like that was one of my biggest roles on still was, you know, cause it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the vision was big, lots of big music, great, you know, it's a big movie and, you know, we had to be really, you know, smart about everything to pull that off to the level that we wanted. So yeah, it's not a conflict at all for me. It's just, I, I, I feel like I know what a, what a director would want in terms of that. And then, then my job as a producer in that situation is to, you know, be the producer I would want as a director. Do you think it's important that that vision is set from the very beginning and that you're always working towards it and reminded of it in order to avoid that conflict and create that collaboration? Um, well, the general road we were going down was set at the beginning, but you know, the movie still, like all movies, especially documentaries, went through a million different, you know, phases and things like that. So when I say set, I mean set in a very big picture, you know, thousand mile view as opposed to the details, you know, I think it's great and important to have a roadmap to start. Even if you start down that road and you end up going someplace totally different, that's completely valid. But to just, you know, start a project where you don't really know what you want and you're kind of flailing around. I mean, that you need to do before you bring other people involved, you know, or bring other people in, you know, and then it becomes a collaboration, but, um, you know, I think it's important to know what you want and then it, and be open to where that will in, eventually change because it will always change. I mean, you've probably heard this before, but there's an old saying, like, you make your movie three times. You make your movie at the beginning, like when you write the script or come up with a concept, right? Second, you make your movie during production, what you're able to shoot. And then third, you make your movie in production or post-production where okay, you have everything that you shot. Now you're going to make it. And they're all a little bit different and they're, they're supposed to be. That's not a failing. That's not like, oh my goodness, we couldn't shoot what we wanted to. Well, you know, everything matures and, you know, gets more solid and things change because of that. It's kind of like Schrodinger's cat in physics. <laughs> I like to think of it, you know, the system is, you know, can be so many different things. It's all these possibilities until you actually look at it or start the work. And 
only then does it become more, you know, tangible and that's how you just move forward. It comes back to, to that open mind that you were talking about earlier when it comes to relationships as well. And if you, you, you talk about caring deeply, which for me is the theme that you're, you're bringing to this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's the same thing is that if you care about it and you know what you care about, then you, you can be open to all of those possibilities. Absolutely. Cause it's, um, yeah, I, you know, and also, I think it's really important. I'm a nerd. I mean, I'm just like prepper. I read everything. I, you know, that's who I am. It's just, that's my nature. And I love it. I love that kind of stuff. But I had to learn that you can prepare and prepare and prepare and think and understand and know what you want, you know, but then if you get, you can be too rigid on that. And then you're in the moment and these happy accidents are going right by you screaming, waving their hands, like, look at me, I'm here. And you're so rigid on your plan that you don't see it. Like that's the, I, I think preparation is key. And then also um, then when you're in the moment, be able to throw all of that away and pivot. The ability to pivot, it, it, it's something I had to learn. And it's a really powerful, it's a powerful and important and essential tool, I think, to making, I think in life, frankly, but you know, certainly in making movies and TV shows. We had a, an episode of the Connected Leadership podcast a couple of months ago with with a German guy, Tom Dutch. Um, but Tom specialised in adaptability, uh, and we've talked very much about this and the difference between being flexible and being adaptable, and that ability to bring that to play. So I think very much what you're talking about brings that conversation to life. And and I'll throw in as an apology to Tom. Congratulations because he got married this weekend. So congratulations, uh, <laughs> Tom. I don't know you, but we we're, we're connected now. Connected leadership. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. We get, you get congratulations from, from New York and Hollywood, Tom. So there you go. That will make up for me getting nationality wrong. One person whose name we've mentioned a few times, but we haven't talked about in terms of the film is Michael J. Fox. And I would assume, given what I perceive of his nature, that he was creatively involved in this. He wasn't just a passenger. So what was his involvement? Did he have the idea and bring it to the table or, or did David, David Guggenheim have the idea and bring it to Michael J. Fox? And how involved was Michael J. Fox with what the end product looked like? Oh my goodness. Michael J. Fox was completely involved from the beginning, middle, and I mean, this movie is his telling of his story and his voice definitely was involved in like the original creative direction. Um, you know, I've worked with him for two years now. You know, he saw cuts, he saw segments that were cut together. He saw cuts as they went. Um, yeah, definitely. This is uh, a collab. You know, we feel deeply and strongly. This is a collaboration with Michael and you know, Michael had Davis, the director did have final cut. So Michael did it. But at the same time, you know, we were all making the same movie. We were making the movie to just really um, allow Michael to tell his story, his whole story. You know, his his story is not just Parkinson's. It's everything, you know, um, his whole his whole journey and his whole path and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So he was deeply involved from the very beginning and really working with uh, Michael Jay Fox and his team and his family was just such an honor, such an honor in my life and such a privilege and such a pleasure because he is just as funny and, you know, great of a guy as you want him to be in real life, like for real. And 
And I stress the funny part, crack of jokes, like nothing, you know, he's the guy in real life that you want him to be from watching his movies and TV shows. And you know, his family was fantastic. And his team, um, you know, his um, uh, producer, now Fortenberry, who was my counterpart, uh, mostly in the making of the movie. I mean, we're like sisters from another mother at this point in time. And his manager, Nina, and his assistant, Lauren. I mean, we became his one team to pull all this off. And it really, again, love, trust, open heart, open mind is key because, you know, making things is hard. Everything changes every day. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, that's like the beauty of it and the excitement of it and why it's not boring. I want to come back to the trust element in a minute because I think that's really important. I just want to say, you talk about he is how he is in real life and he's funny. There, there's a scene where he's at the doctor's. He's had a fall and he's cracking jokes throughout. And that right? was my dad. That was my dad. And I think when, when you see any representation of someone who is suffering from an ailment, whatever it might be, there's that instinct to see them as a victim. And that humanity that comes through humor, we saw with my dad, you could see with Michael J. Fox as well. It is so incredibly powerful and leveling in a way. And I thought that came through really well uh, in, in the film as well. Um, yeah, Michael J. Fox is the opposite of a victim. I mean, he is the master of his own destiny. I mean, he is, he, that's, that's the opposite. I mean, he, you know, it's a terrible disease he got and he got early and he's even taken that and changed the face of literally every person who has Parkinson's now and every person who may get Parkinson's in the future. I mean, he would have been able to rally that kind of do- that kind of dollars and supports and that kind of support with his celebrity. And he did that full on as he changed the face of the world. It's just that simple. So with that in mind, it is an incredibly powerful film that builds on the legacy he's already been building for years about, as you say, how people perceive Parkinson's and the people who suffer from it. The film as a result is an incredibly powerful tool in that that movement. But as you say, it's not just about his Parkinson's, it's about, it's about his career. So how do you get that balance right so that you do honour the message and you do ensure that it lives up to its potential for that message, but you don't make it a campaign video? That's a great question. Well, first of all, everyone was aligned, you know, Concordia on the production side and also Michael and his team on his side. We were aligned very strongly that nobody was setting out to make a Parkinson's movie. This was not going to be a poor me. This was not going to be violins. And Michael talks about that in the movie. This was not going to be a Parkinson's movie. So we all knew that and were aligned from the very beginning. So, and because we went into this with trust and love and support, this is, was not going to be like a gotcha kind of thing. It was not going to be, a, you know, let's see you at your worst. And it was, you know, really it's the, again, the trust and the love and, and being aligned on what kind of movie that everybody wanted to make from the beginning. And then you work and you, you know, struggle and you celebrate along the way and all those different steps. Cause they're, you know, there's, there's, there's joy in movie making. And there's also a ton of hard work on everyone's part. You touched on trust. Um, and I think that that's so important with any documentary program 
but you've got to be able to show your subject in their true light and not in the light which they might want to be painted. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and we do, from the beginning, we see Michael is most vulnerable. You know, it opens with shots of him struggling to get out of bed in the morning, struggling to brush his teeth, struggling to walk along the pavement and falling over and a passerby trying to help him up. I mean, that really sets the tone for the film. Now, obviously, it helps that it's his project, as you say, to a large degree. But it's not just Michael J. Fox, it's his family, it's his doctors, it's the people around him. How do you win the trust of people involved in a project like that and get them to be their authentic selves? I think it's it's important to, um, when you want to have someone in any movie, your movie, your TV show, whatever it is, that you reach out as soon as you know, you know, to give you to give yourself as much time as you can to create a relationship, you know, and that's and then of course as you're creating a relationship, it's imperative to be honest. Like if something's going to be hard because it's you know whatever it's cold out or whatever, it's just important to um, just be honest and say things as they are and not whitewash and not you know rope someone in based on x y and z and then you're like psych it's now it's now a b and c not x y and z like it's just you know it's really just building as much time as possible so that's you know starting and also reaching out to people as soon as possible i think is important because we're all busy people you know yes we might be making the movie and that's our main focus but like doctors are doctors (laughs) and this movie is is you know it's part of their plate for the day but it's not their so not their, you know, maybe main thing. And to give people as much time as possible, I think is respectful in terms of trying to, we're not just going on the movie's timeline. We also understand that every single individual has a timeline too and being respectful of that because people are busy, you know? So, yeah, so I think it's you know, approaching as early as possible, being as transparent as possible. You know, things change, couldn't change too, and being transparent about that. It, I didn't sell you a bill of goods. Things just changed and, you know, keeping people in the loop of that. And also like what people need on the day, which might be different, you know, um, you know, will, will you be more comfortable if I get a hair makeup artist for you? Cause you're not used to being on camera or is that weird? And you don't want that. I don't care. I just want to know what you want. And then I want to show up with it and facilitate it. Um, so I mean, it just really goes back to the same thing, you know, if you care deeply, all the things that I just mentioned comes naturally, you know, and you can't, if you don't care deeply out of the, out of the gate, people feel it, people know it. And, you know, you might get something, but you're not going to get something when you're leading with trust and transparency. Do you find the, I mean, I would imagine with, Michael J. Fox and with his wife, who was his co-star on Family Ties, they're used to cameras being around them. I don't know about their kids, but certainly the two of them will have been comfortable immediately, I'm sure. With some of the other people in the film, does it take a while to get them to forget that the camera is there and you have to just shoot lots of footage until they are acting naturally in front of the camera? And is it just a patience game in that case? I think every... Every situation is different and specific to the people involved. Sometimes it's, 
you know, shooting for hours and hours to get your three minutes. Actually, in documentaries, you often weigh, you shoot more than you need because you do need to like just kind of let life unfold as it is. I mean, it's not, this isn't a reality show, like directed like a reality show where you're pitting people against each other and setting up conflict or setting up things, you know, more for the Verite parts of the film, you know, we're more fly in the wall. So then that's where you need the time to get, uh, you know, to get people feel com- to feel comfortable and that sort of thing. And just, you know, you never know when the magic is going to happen. It really could happen the minute you turn on the cameras because people are stoked or maybe at the end because people are tired. You just don't know. And you have to, you know, build in the time for the real life to happen. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it tied in with your previous answer as well about building the trust, building the relationship, being authentic and caring deeply. It, it really sort of sets it up so that you can create those authentic interactions and you know for the connected leadership pods that's ideal i have some podcasts where like last week where it's so obviously linked to this topic others you don't know quite where it will go but i had a feeling that yes we would be on target and uh, and on message and very much so i think there's so much in what you've done in this film and in what you've shared in these answers that goes to that so so be respectful of your time as well i know you've got a couple of exciting new projects planned so what's next for you uh, so i am i directed my 14th film in the fall and i'm in post on that a little horror movie called communion which was super super fun and exciting for me it was my first film ever with only one actor and a script with no words oh wow improv yeah. So I'm like, okay. All right. So I, I always try to do something different with my films to, you know, stretch and grow. And it's been super fun. And I'm very excited about that. And like I mentioned before, I was a part of the DGA's episodic television mentorship program. So as a, being a part of that program, and as most of my work as a director's in streaming and network, you know, that's really the the path that I'm headed down. And of course, you know, we are, are striped and negotiations situation this year uh, has put all of that a little bit on a um, pause. We hit pause on that for a little while until we get everything sorted out. But yeah, my next phase and I'm stoked. I'm beyond happy, beyond excited. Well, your script without words, your horror film, I know you're a big fan of improv, which we've also talked about recently and, and a lot on the podcast. Is that drawing on your improv experience in there? Oh, that's so funny. Actually, it's not at all. The The movie was scripted, but just with no words. So it was not improv. Although I'm so glad you bring up improv, Andy, because I love improv so much. I think every single human on this planet should at least take one improv class, if not whole, you know, four levels of it. Improv, I think, is it's a life lesson. It's a life skill. And it really has it can have zero to do with the, with the movie and the, the entertainment business. It really is about confidence and confidence and confidence. And um, like, I'm not a, I'm a behind camera talent person. I'm not in front of the camera. So I hated improv when I started it, but I persevered and it, you really just learn because you're terrified, right? But the more you're terrified and you get through that show, or the more you're terrified and you get through that class, the more your body learns that, okay, I might be terrified, but I'm going to live. So then your brain can think. So it really, 
it's practice for being in the hot seat, whether you're a CEO of a company hot seat or mm-hmm. a traffic cop hot seat or a frontline responder hot seat. I really think improv is something that everyone, that's one of my life lessons. Andy, take an improv class. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I would also recommend go back to Connected Leadership Podcast on the 29th of May with Neil Malarkey from the Comedy Store Players. Mm-hmm. And Neil was with us about a year and a half ago as well, talking about improv along with John Creamer of the Mayday Players. So we've talked about it a lot because it's so important for, for the reasons you say and more in building relationships as well mm-hmm. and giving that confidence, as you say, to move forward. Yeah. And, and yes, that, and. I'm oh, sorry. Yes, and. Yeah, yeah. which we've covered. We've yeah. Covered <laughs> it's a great life philosophy. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yes, and thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you. It's lived up to every expectation and more, as the film did. Uh, and, well, I look forward to our next conversation, maybe off of the podcast, but for the book, and find out more about your mentoring. But in the meantime, Annette, thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Oh, my goodness, Andy. I have had a ball. I cannot believe our time is already up. Can I just say one thing before we go? Because I think this is really important. Talent does not discriminate opportunities are what or that's what is hard to find and that's why it's so important for every one of us to be practice and practicing our craft and practicing and practicing to be ready because when that ball is thrown to you that first time you've got to be able to you have to be ready to knock it out of the ballpark and also the something to think about about that is you can't knock it out of the ballpark unless someone tosses you the ball at least once So that's, I think, you know, the being ready and being prepared is on us, each individual, and the opportunities coming our way, that's on the universe. But the universe, I think, responds mostly when you're prepared. So be prepared and let the universe do its part of things. I love that. I I always hop back to the famous Gary Player quote. I don't know if you know this one, the famous Mm -hmm. South African golfer. And Gary Player came off of a a round where he had good fortune. And someone said to him, you were lucky today, weren't you, Gary? And he said, maybe. He said, but you know what? The harder I practice, the luckier I get. And and I always say that in terms of networks, the better connected you are, the more opportunities have come your way. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much, Annette. That's a great note to finish on. Thanks for joining me. So thank you so much to Annetta. What a wonderful guest. And I said this already, if there's a theme to that conversation, it's caring deeply. You know, that came up two or three times. If you care deeply enough, people will see it. They'll they'll relax in your presence. The possibilities will arise. And, you know, this is from someone who said she accidentally fell into film while studying an engineering degree and has worked with some of the biggest names in the world and will carry on doing so, I'm sure. So I found this totally inspiring. I hope you have as well. I have another very exciting guest coming along, I think next week. We're just waiting to confirm as I record this from across the pond as well. So you'll just have to tune in and find out who it is next week on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.